Please keep your Bible open to Second Chronicles 13, and we'll be looking at a little bit more of that chapter here in just a few moments this evening. It is good that God has certainly blessed us the way that He has. We're thankful for the measure of health we have. We're so thankful for the many other things that shower upon us, the food, the shelter, the clothing that we enjoy in such abundance. There are people, of course, around the world who are not so blessed as we in that way. And yet, as you and I are mindful of the, the host of blessings that come our way, certainly one of them is the privilege it's ours to meet in a way like this, to offer our worship unto the God who makes all of that possible, and to offer to Him the heartfelt appreciation and the gratitude that we feel. To fight against God. That's the title of the lesson, and you may have noticed I took that from that text in 2 Chronicles 13, 12. As you begin to look at some of the next features on this introductory slide, may I just invite you to make a rather obvious observation. I suppose that most anybody would say it would be absolute foolishness to fight against God. Who would ever do that? Who would ever have a mentality to suppose that that could turn out well? And yet, you and I will notice there are a number of Bible characters who, in fact, found themselves in that very situation. And by way of consideration and by way of principle, you and I might well find ourselves in that predicament as well, to fight against God. As you close that particular slide with me, could I point out, why don't we first of all reflect on a few statements found in the Word of God, looking at several explicit examples of those who did fight against God, and then we will make a few applications and apply all of that, of course, to you and to me. The circumstance of our setting takes us back to a gentleman named Abijah. And so, rather than reading the entirety of that setting, let me just overview some of it and share at least the pertinent parts of it. And then we will look more at the characteristics of not only what he said, but will make application to us. First of all, Jeroboam, as you and I will remember, was the first king of Israel. And the Word of God goes to great lengths to help us remember that he made Israel to see and end that. He chose to pursue that which was not right, and he made encouragement of others to do that as well. Jeroboam, the one who made Israel sin. First Kings 14, 16, in fact, highlights that in rather dramatic language, but that's not the only verse that does so. Could I point out, though, that the second king of Judah, who reigned to some extent at the same time with Jeroboam, was a man named Abijah. He was the son of Rehoboam, and the Word of God also reminds us of this in 1 Kings 15, that he too was evil. So might you keep with me in mind the thought that Abijah, the Bible does not highlight that he made the noblest and wisest and godliest of decisions. He is regarded as a man described in the way of evil. I say it that way due to what comes next. There was an episode in the life of Abijah, and it's one that garners our attention in 2 Chronicles 13. May I again overview part of it? Jeroboam and Abijah, as leaders of these separate kingdoms of Israel and Judah, they didn't get along, and in fact, the two kingdoms warred against each other despite the fact that all of them were the people of God, supposedly, they fought against each other. Israel against Judah, Judah against Israel. 
on this particular occasion, you may notice that this war that was about to ensue is such that the numbers of the troops is given. In verse number 3 of 2 Chronicles 13, we learn that there were 400,000 men of Judah that were ready to go to war. There was twice that many of Israel, 800,000 men. You can now get a feeling that between the two, a million two hundred thousand soldiers in combat, doing battle one against another. As the battle was about to ensue, Abijah, the king of Judah, made a speech. During the course of that speech, here were some of the things that he pointed out. He first of all highlighted that the God of heaven had selected David and his posterity to be the leaders. And he pointed out that you, Jeroboam, are not of the lineage of David. And he pointed out that the considerations of Israel are not consistent with this. But he didn't stop there. Not only did he point a rather directed finger at them, he had something to say about their priesthood and their kingdom. At the top of that slide, you may notice, he pointed out that you, Israel, you, Jeroboam, you are withstanding God's kingdom. You are not consistently behaving in light of it. You have not followed that which God has revealed and directed. And specifically, he began to mention the priesthood. We, he said, are those who still use the Levitical priesthood. Our priests are the sons of Aaron. That's not true of you in Israel. You, in fact, haven't let anybody be a priest. You've gone out and found folks who otherwise were priests of some kind of idolatrous deity, and you've made them your priests. He said, that isn't right. And God does not look with favor upon it. At this point, we then arrive at the statement of verse number 12. I'd like to read that one again. And behold, God Himself is with us for our captain. And his priests, with sounding trumpets, to cry alarm against you. O children of Israel, fight ye not against the Lord God of your fathers, for ye shall not prosper. Abijah was this gentleman who made that statement. He urged them in wisdom, including Jeroboam, Don't you fight against God, for you will not be prosperous in that endeavor. Isn't it a fantastic thing to perhaps imagine? Here were hundreds of thousands of people getting ready for battle, and Jeroboam and the other leaders heard Abijah make that speech, somewhat of which we've highlighted. You may at that point wonder, what happened once the battle did take place? How did it turn out? If you begin reading in verse number 13, you find that things began to look exceedingly troubling for the people of Judah. Remember, there were twice as many troops in Israel. They surrounded the troops of Judah, both forward and backward. They were surrounded principally on all sides. It did not look favorable. There were situations of the enemy in the front and situations of the enemy behind. At that point, you may think it was hopeless. What chance do we have? We're outnumbered two to one. It is, under that circumstance... May I direct you to the following statement? Verse number 14. And when Judah looked back, behold, the battle was before and behind. And they cried unto the Lord, and the priests sounded with the trumpets. 
Then the men of Judah gave a shout, and as the men of Judah shouted, it came to pass that God smote Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. And the children of Israel fled before Judah, and God delivered them into their hand. And Abijah and his people slew them with a great slaughter. So there fell down, slain of Israel, 500,000 chosen men. On this particular occasion, I suppose all of us can to some extent imagine it. Lots of troops battling one against another. And you can now imagine that on this occasion, as this circumstance prevailed, the people of Judah approached unto God. The priest blew those trumpets. And the text says in verse number 15 that God smote Jeroboam. It wasn't one of the members of the military. It wasn't one of the otherwise individuals connected in some way to the administration of Abijah. God did it. This very one who led the rebellion against God, who in fact fought against him, he didn't take to heart what Abijah had urged. Abijah had insisted, don't fight against God, for you will not prosper. Jeroboam, as you can see, didn't listen very well at all to that, but rather had in his mind what he thought was the appropriate thing for his kingdom to in fact be victorious. And he said ambushments before and behind. And no doubt, Jeroboam began to feel confident. We've got this. Abijah is surrounded. The entirety of Judah has, in, has been encompassed. And then suddenly, he forgot about God. And God fought against him and smote him. As you read further in that chapter, you begin to notice some of the following comments. Judah recaptured several cities. And never more again during the days of Jeroboam did Israel rise to cause problems for Judah like they had then. In other words, this defeat was so resounding and so thorough that Israel, you see, remained weaker for quite some time to come. As you close that particular slide with me, couldn't we then reiterate what we noted earlier? To fight against God is absolute foolishness. It is absolute folly. Why would anyone think to do it? Jeroboam tried it, and it didn't turn out very well. What might be some lessons in that that can be hopeful and helpful and encouraging to each of us as we imagine the danger of fighting against God? Let's begin by observing somewhat about Abijah again. I tried to point out as we began that study a moment ago the Word of God is rather clear in cataloging Abijah as evil. And yet, on this occasion, this speech he delivered was filled with assurance. It was filled with faithful reliance upon God. It was filled with a consideration of trustworthiness in that which God had done and could do. Again, what Abijah said here was impressive. I would think in that there's something to be noted for you and for me. God doesn't only want faithfulness every now and then. Although it might be true that on this occasion, Abijah said the right things, and he in fact behaved in the right way, the larger context of the Old Testament presentation would label him as a man of evilness and a man who was not wise. What a motivation for all of us. God doesn't want us just to be a person that's faithful to Him once every now and then. 
perhaps a time or two a week. But what about all the time? Did Jesus say it like this in Matthew 10, verse 22? It's true that this was in a context connected to the destruction of Jerusalem, but He warned those of that day, He that endureth to the end shall be saved. You can't give up ahead of the end. You can't throw up and quit prior to the end. Those that endure to the end are the ones that will be saved. And so it is in Revelation 2 that in those words directed to the church at Sardis, wasn't it true? I'm sorry, the church at Smyrna. Wasn't it true that they were told that despite the fact that some of them were to be cast into prison, they were admonished, Be thou faithful unto death, and I'll give thee a crown of life. But faithfulness through the characteristics of difficulty, faithfulness through the matters of choices and decisions, faithfulness in light of all the attributes of that time, and then, and then, the crown of life would be bestowed. So it is with you and me. To be baptized into Christ is the single greatest decision of life. But yet, one can't simply do that and suppose my ticket to heaven is punched. It doesn't work that way. We are admonished in faithfulness, in directness and devotion and loyalty to God. And so it was that although Abijah made this dramatically positive statement on this occasion, the larger context would call into question many of the particulars of his particular life. What about a second lesson, however? It's not only the case that here Abijah made these interesting words, but could I point out that we have other characters of the Bible who stated something rather similar. If you'd hold your finger there in 2 Chronicles 13 and turn with me to Acts chapter 5, we find another Bible character who had much to say sounding quite similar to what was said on this occasion. Here the person before us will be none other than Gamaliel. In Acts the 5th chapter, may I turn your attention to near the beginning of that chapter in which we'll just make some brief observations and come to verse number 33 when we'll start our reading. But you remember that the early days of the church is what's under discussion here. The church had begun in Acts chapter 2. About 3,000 had obeyed the gospel that day. And by the time we arrive at chapter 4 verse 2, we notice the number was now 5,000. The church was growing. The gospel was being shared. and It was being obeyed. It is in that regard, then we come to chapter 5, in which we find the apostles were being greatly persecuted because the Jews were not supportive of that message. The Jews held on to the law of Moses. They weren't supportive, you see, of this gospel of Jesus Christ. There was a great stir connected to Christianity. In that light, you may notice in verses 28 and following that the apostles were called before the Sanhedrin council. In other words, they were being questioned. And to some extent, it was an even stronger consideration than that. They were being opposed, and the council wasn't happy about the matters that they were teaching. As those apostles appeared before that council, we have the words of one of the council members shared with us by inspiration. Beginning in verse number 33, When they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. In other words, the council was ready to put those apostles to death. They didn't like even a little bit 
what they had been hearing from the mouths of them and what those apostles had been teaching. However, in verse number 34, Then stood there up one of the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space. You can just imagine the kind of respect that apparently this man Gamaliel had. This doctor of the law, this Pharisee, this one who was had in such reputation, he gave order, let's put these apostles out while we have a bit of a discussion. And this is what he said. Verse number 35, And said unto them, Ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what ye intend to do as touching these men. For before these days rose up Thutis, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about four hundred, joined themselves, who was slain. And all, as many as obeyed him, were scattered and brought to naught. After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing, and drew away much people after him. He also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. And now I say unto you, Refrain from these men, and let them alone, for if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest haply ye be found even to fight against God. You can perhaps imagine a hush fell over that room wherever they were meeting. As the wisdom of this man Gamaliel, he said, Gentlemen, don't you remember about Thutis? This fellow was a somewhat of a fanatic, and by way of what he taught, he gathered a group. And you and I know what happened to Thutis. That movement came to nothing. It wasn't of God. And then there was Judas of Galilee, and you recall he too garnered a, a following. But that wasn't of God either. That movement has now perished and gone aside. And thus he urged that counsel, you be careful what you do with these apostolic men. If what they're saying is of God, we can't overcome it. We can't fight against God. But if it's of men, it will be crushed on its own. Wasn't there a great wisdom in what he said that day? In fact, if you look at verse number 40, it says to him they agreed... In other words, they gave heed to that which he had said. It sounded wise and appropriate to them. But isn't it interesting? Here was Gamaliel who said, We can't fight against God. And isn't it so that that's still the way it is? Oh, you and I can try to fight against Him, but we're bound to lose. And we're bound to be overwhelmed because we are not powerful like Him. We aren't almighty like Him. And what God's will is will always be done. I've listed some other examples on that slide. We won't read all of these. But isn't it interesting to contemplate in Acts chapter 9, verse 5, it would appear that none other than Paul fits into this category of example as well. Do you recall that in Acts 9, verse number 5, on that road to Damascus, here was a man and the Lord appeared to him in that bright light. And Jesus asked a question. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Saul said, Who art thou, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. The latter part of that phrase, hard for thee to kick against the pricks, 
you and I think about a goad. We know in these parts of the world what a goad is used for. If you're driving cattle, it's a big stick with a, with a sharp point on the end of it. So you can direct that cow or the bull or the calves to where you want them to go. That's the word in the original translation. Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. You and I know that when a cow pushes against that, the cow's only injuring him or herself because it hurts. Paul, the more you resist. Paul, you see, had been schooled under Gamaliel, the very man of whom you and I just read. And if Gamaliel, in that kind of wisdom, had an appreciation for the matter of the God of heaven and his gospel message, maybe Paul, for some time, had at least mentally been fighting against it. And the very God of heaven, of course, Jesus the Christ, on that road said, Paul, hard for you to kick against the pricks. Isn't it time that you succumb in mind to what you know is the case? Three days later in Damascus, Ananias baptized that man, and he began to preach. And he preached the unsearchable riches of Christ. You see, Paul apparently had tried to fight against God, and it didn't work. Today, it isn't going to work for you and me either. What about lesson number three? There are other verses in the Bible that speak about fighting against God. Could I point out that the word controversy comes to mind? And the Word of God uses that word on several occasions. In Hosea 4 verse 1, The God of heaven triumphantly asserted to the ancient peoples, The Lord hath a controversy against the land. You see, if God has a controversy with you or me, we've got a problem. It isn't Him. We have a problem. And God had a controversy with ancient Israel. Not only in Hosea chapter 4 verse 1, but four verses later in Hosea 4 verse 5, we learn somewhat about what that controversy brought about. It brought about destruction. It brought about suffering. The people of Israel were not going to do well because of this. When God had a controversy with Judah which is highlighted in Hosea 12, verse 2, that too did not work well for Judah. It seems as though the message is clear. Any person or any people with whom God has a controversy, things are not going to go well for that person or, in fact, for that group of people. How important then is it to be wise with regard to the will of God and to never fight against Him? As you close that particular slide with me, in Micah 6 verse 2, we find God pleading with the people of that day in light of a controversy, pleading with them to come to their senses and pleading with them to make the appropriate changes. God pleads with all of us that might well be in controversy against Him. Hebrews chapter 3. I suppose the temptation in all this, though, is to think that we know best to think that I know better than God and to think that perhaps in some way He's not aware of the situation I'm in. But surely in our better moments, we know that isn't true. God knows all things, including the specifics of my life and yours. He understands the circumstances we face. There was never a temptation of any kind that man might face that Jesus didn't face. And he did not succumb to it. Hebrews 4.15 As you close that particular slide, what about another lesson centered around this one? 
fighting against God. That was the title of the lesson. Let's summarize a point or two if we might. Abijah highlighted in 2 Chronicles 13, 12, the folly of fighting against God. He urged them, don't fight against God, for you will not prosper. There isn't anything about that that has changed. In Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. But isn't it interesting to be reminded that God isn't mocked? Sometimes on earth we might well mock someone. In fact, you might remember sometimes you tried that on your dad or your grandpa, and I'm sure that didn't work out well. But we are assured here that nobody, nobody will successfully mock God. Oh, in this life we may suppose that we shall have the final say. But on that day of judgment, and in fact, even sometimes on occasion here, God can bring the matters of His judgment and the matters of His insistence to us in ways that can bring challenges to our life. God brought punishment to the ancient people of Israel. He sent them to captivity in this world, even before they got to the day of judgment. You and I might have hardship here if we start fighting against God, if we start to think that we know better than Him. That means in every aspect of what the Word of God teaches us. May we in wisdom choose to live a life that is not controversial against God, but a life in which His will is supreme, a life in which the directives that He would otherwise state about obedience to Him, the choices with regard to the various matters of life consistent with Him. I suppose you and I may have known those who either directly or indirectly, have chosen to fight against God. And that's so sad, and it's so hurtful. The final slide of this particular lesson is, in fact, only conclusion. Isn't it obvious to say that God is almighty? He is sovereign. He is infinite in understanding, Psalm 147, verse 5, and He's always right. God is always right, and hence to attempt to fight against Him is nonsense. This very evening, I hope that we have been reminded about Abijah and Gamaliel and others of the Word of God who in wisdom spoke about the folly of fighting against God. May you and I in wisdom make the choices in our life to not fight against Him. Tonight, we would wish to offer the Lord's invitation if there's someone in this assembly, and maybe you have been fighting against God, oh, you would never have come out and said it that way. You would not have admitted it publicly that way. But perhaps in your own mind, you, you've known what the Word of God says, but you just weren't going to do it. You were deliberately going to do what you wanted instead. Don't you realize you were fighting against God in that way? And you were not going to prosper. None of us will like that. We would wish again to insist that if you find yourself in that situation, though once a faithful Christian, but tonight you're not, may we offer this invitation and urge you to confess those errors, to make repentance of them, 
and to come rushing back to the faithful side of the Lord in which you're not fighting against Him, but you're fighting against the devil alongside the God of heaven. For aren't we told in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 8, we are fellow laborers with God. And so tonight, if that could be a matter of assistance to someone, we would offer that invitation. If you've never become a Christian, though, we would like you to realize the plan of salvation is again put before us. To believe in the Lord, to repent of our sins, to confess His matchless name and to be baptized. And if we could help anyone in that way tonight, we too would wish to do that. Brother Larry has chosen a song of encouragement. If we could be of assistance at this moment, we would invite you to come while we stand and while we sing.